Hello, everybody, and welcome to Prime Time with your host, WWE Hall of Famer Hacksaw Jim Duggan, and me, John Mooney. You know, the guy who spent a lot of time in the event center way back when, when the WWE was still the WWF. And Hacksaw, you know, it's been nearly 25 years, and we're together again. Hey, wow. You know, thanks a lot, Sean. But, you know, Hacksaw's got to be Hacksaw. And if you're going to be Hacksaw, that is going to be, oh, kind of fires me up to this day, you know, gets me going. But, uh, yeah, it's good to be talking to you, Sean, after all these years. Uh, you know, it's funny how the way people's paths travel and go different ways and, and cross again down the road. Yeah. You know, that's it really I, hasn't. You never say goodbye. You always say, see you down the road. That's right. And, and uh, you know, it really hasn't been 25 years. Actually, uh, I was thinking the last time I saw you was at the thousandth episode of Raw. And, uh, you know, we they had us doing a lot of crazy things. I, I remember <laughs> seeing you go down the hallway. I can't even remember what. <laughs> but you had the two by four. But it, it was uh, it was a really great day. And I actually got to bring my son with me to that episode because uh, he was really into the WWE at the time. And to be able to uh, take him to that was just an incredible experience. You know, it was in St. Louis, as you remember. And um, I hadn't really been around uh, the boys in a long time. I didn't even know if anybody would remember me when, when they brought me in because, you know, I was the first person ever seen on Raw. I was down in the street in New York City on a freezing night and did the big welcome uh, as we started uh, that incredible show. The Pat Center. Yeah. You remember that? Of and, course. Uh, yeah. Uh, what a, what a day that was, what a night it was. And I remember they had a, a, uh, a legends locker room and, um, that's where they put everybody who wasn't, you know, of the new age, I guess. And just seeing all those guys in there and they were, they, they were so great. I remember Joe Laurinaitis and, uh, and Roddy, Roddy Piper. He basically adopted my son that night and just, uh, those guys were so cool. And, and Roddy, was so great to him as we were leaving that night, he took off his, you know, his Roddy t-shirt, the ones that he always, the one they always wore and he gave it to Kyle. And, uh, you know, it just made me remember back of, of just, you know, what a great period of my life uh, that was. And, and, uh, I'm sure you being there that night must've been pretty, uh, uh amazing well, you, too. You know, I think it's uh, something we appreciate now more than ever going back around the company and seeing what a huge operation it is, where where it's come from and, and what the, the international monster that it is today. I mean, it's great to be able to stand back and look at it and say, holy smoke, you know, 25, 18 wheelers, limousines, buses. I mean, you name it, it's out there. But but speaking of that 100 episodes, funny you mentioned that because that they did have us in a special uh, locker room. They had us in yeah. the St. Louis Blues dressing room. Oh, it was a gorgeous dressing room. You know, the carpet, the nice padded uh, lockers, you know, uh, leather couches, big flat screen TVs. And it's it's funny. I did rather the, uh, the night before I had did an independent show at the. The fairgrounds in Iowa, <laughs> and the, the dressing was down by the uh, the cattle exhibit. I mean, it was funny <laughs> going from you know the Indy there in the fairgrounds to the St. Louis Blues dressing room. Just shows the the scope of wrestling takes up. But uh, yeah. that was a great time, and of course, the, your, Piper was so great with kids. He he loved kids. He loved people. So uh, we we all miss him. Yeah, and I I know that you, you knew him in the business and all that you know that went on, but I, but I know you really got to know him when you did Legends House down the road. Uh, we're definitely going to do an episode about that experience that you had with him. But you know, I actually got to watch a, a few clips from that 
um, the other night on the network. And you guys really had a connection there. Uh, and it's, it's, it's kind of too bad it happened, uh, you know, so far down the road. But I know that you guys became very close in a short period of time. Yeah, I think the, the fans called it the bromance, the way, yeah. the, 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 way the relationship evolved. Because, you know, with, back in the day, he was running with Bob Orton and, and Adrian Adonis and stuff. And I was running with Jake and DiBiase, you know, were two different uh, groups. Yeah. So we didn't really know each other. So when, you know, if they were flying out to uh, California to do Legend House at this huge uh, uh, mansion, you know, we flew out there in their Palm Springs. And they're like, well, Hacksaw, you have to have a, a roommate. I'm like, well, I haven't had a roommate since college. You know, yeah. like, hey, you know, maybe I can room with Hillbilly. Uh, I know Jimmy Hart. And they're like, and you're rooming with Piper. <laughs> I did, and I didn't really know Piper, you know. So for the first two days, we're just kind of eyeballing each other. Like, yeah, how you doing? I'm, I'm doing good. How you doing? <laughs> but, but then, uh, yeah, it evolved. And uh, we became best friends. Our our families became friends. Our our we're friends with his wife to this day. I mean, uh, his boy, his family. Uh, yeah, we, we really became close over those. It was summer camp for us. Everybody else was asleep, and me and Piper were in our beds telling stories and giggling like a couple of kids. And the great thing about rooming with Piper is you get away with anything, you blame it on Piper. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And they believe and everybody it. Everybody believe it. <laughs> yeah. But you guys, it, it was pretty awesome to see the, 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 and it's, you know, another shame of it is that it seemed like when you guys really did uh, connect, it wasn't long after that we lost them. And, uh, you know, it's just a damn shame because, uh, you know, and even, you know, all the time I got, I worked with him, I didn't get a chance to see him that much, but he was always just, you know, uh, a lot of people never really got to see that side of Roddy and, uh, you know, uh, I know we'll do a show on him down the road too, but, but, uh, he, he was just a, a very un, a complex, uh, you know, hilarious guy. He could be very serious, very deep, you know, and, uh, we definitely got to get hey, it. This weekend, uh, I was just up in, uh, Maryland doing an autograph session. Peoria I did a baseball game. And if anybody comes up and talks about Roddy Piper, they always talk about what a caring guy he would take. He'd take so much time with the folks he would stay longer than the autograph session was going to make sure he take everybody, take care of everybody in the line. He was a very care, you know, the young kids, he talked to them. He'd look them in the eye and talk to them. Uh, he, he was a caring guy. And, and that really, really came through. And of course he had a whole different personality. There's a few different pipers in that body, you know, yeah. and a couple of hacksaws in here with me and that <laughs> one gets me in trouble all the time, but, yeah, but you're, uh, you're, you're like one of those blooming onions, uh, Jim, that we're going to be peeling back as we go through the, the months here. Uh, I do, I want to get, I, I got to ask you this though. I, it had been a while and, you know, we knew each other from when we would do TVs and, you know, I always thought you were, one of the funniest guys of all the boys. I mean, you always were, were so hilarious. I, and I knew you could be a stand-up comedian, which you are, but I have to wonder, like, what did you think when, when I called you uh, and, and started to drag you down this road with me? To the, uh, the, uh, but to call about to try and get you on this podcast because oh, yeah. I, I kind of got the ball rolling on this. And, I, you know, we haven't talked. Like I said, I haven't seen you. 
Well, I know it. You know, it's a it's just a popular popular era in wrestling. It's the golden age of wrestling, kind of like in Hollywood with uh, Rock Hudson and John Wayne and that era. That's that was the era. You you can still name ten WWF guys without thinking about it. You know, it's hard to name ten of the current roster. I mean, it was a, a era in time, and it was a a privilege to be part of that era. I mean. A, a, 90% of the folks I talk to say, Hacksaw, I really enjoy your era more than the current product. Of course, I say, well, there was 80,000 people at WrestleMania. Somebody's watching, watching yeah. the other show. <laughs> yeah, and of course, with the, with the network now, I mean, I, 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 have you seen, um, you know, because you've never stopped. I mean, you've been uh, doing this, uh, you know, for a long But do, have you seen like this this? A resurgence with the network and and now that people are able to see a lot of this stuff from the time that we spent during what was then the wwf yeah and not just the wwf but also the whole library that right. made available to people i mean the awa the mid-south the texas championship wrestling georgia you know i mean there was some great, and I, that gave everybody, everybody got a, a, a new rebirth with, with that. So many folks have opened us up to a whole new generation of fans. I know at the autograph sessions and uh, meet and greets, the kids, the folks will come up and say, you know, we watch the stuff on the, the uh, network. And my kid loves the smaller kids because the characters are over the top, you know, one yeah. man getting uh, to Akeem. I mean, big boss, man. I mean, the characters were so uh, such remember and young kids love that. So, uh, yeah, it's great because that helped all of us uh, on the indie circuit in the uh, in the Comic-Con circuit. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I really want, I want to welcome everybody that has taken the time, you know, to listen to uh, our debut uh, podcast here. We're calling it uh, Prime Time with Hacksaw, Jim Duggan, and Sean Mooney. And, uh, you know, uh, folks, if, if you, uh, you know, uh, love that period of time that, that we're talking about here, that many people believe was the greatest period in, in wrestling history, you know, that the 80s and the 90s, you know, this is definitely the podcast for you because we're going to be, uh, you know, throwing out all kinds of stories. Uh, I think we're going to probably be uncovering a few things that we don't even, uh, you know, uh, remember, but the, I think we're going to get that out of us when we talk about some of these events that have, that have happened. And before we get into that, though, you know, I, I wanted to give kind of catch everybody up to where, you know, uh, what we've been up to. I know that people see you out there doing uh, a lot of these independent shows. Uh, you're at comic cons. I know you're at wrestle cons. Uh, give me a, a little kind of an overview of all the stuff you've been doing. I mean, even this past weekend you were busy. So uh, tell me what's up today. And then we're going to start taking a few uh, decades back. Cause I want to find out uh, what you remember the time when you first came in to the WWF. Oh, yeah. Well, I just, well, the Thursday night I was up in uh, Peoria for a baseball game. So I drove up to Charlotte, flew up to Peoria Thursday, did the game, flew home Friday. Saturday, I drove back up to Charlotte, flew to the BWI Baltimore Airport, drove to Chambersburg, Maryland, did a, a three hour autograph session there, drove up to Harrisburg, flew home Saturday night. So I've, I flew up, did the show, and was able to fly home Saturday night. Uh, I do a, a you know, a lot of comic cons, it's amazing how much, uh, you know, f there is out there, especially for our generation of guys. And there are a lot of guys that still aren't, uh, able to, to go out there and perform. You know, I, I still, I still get in the ring. People say, yeah. Hacksaw, you, you still wrestle. 
<laughs> well, I don't know. I, I don't know if they call it wrestling, but I still I still get in the ring, you know. And, but of course, even when I'm I'm down in Orlando, that's right, because I you know tell the kids at 63 years old I have no physical attributes left at all. You know, one of the first things I do is I check at the indie shows. Is you guys got stairs? <laughs> I get up in the ring. You guys got some stairs? You get up there? But I, I tell you what, get some ramps for me. Yeah. But that has nothing to do with the deal to be able to entertain people. I can still go to the ring and I can have everybody in that arena standing up, Chen, USA, USA, everybody's going, ho. So it's more to it than just going out there taking bumps back and forth. It's ring presence. It's telling a story. It's uh, the wrestling, the art of wrestling. And that's kind of a lost art now where it's almost a bumpaholic. Bingity, 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 bing. Nobody sells nothing. Everybody takes every kind of bump. Uh, but, uh, and it's popular on the indie shows. You can't have a whole show of old timers, but you have, uh, as Mid-South had, something for everybody. You have a wild man, you have a mask guy, you have a pretty boy, you have a muscle head, you know, have a pretty girl, something for everybody. And there's a, a room out there for an old timer match. Ho! Yeah. People it, say, Hacksaw, where, where'd that hoe come from? I said, well, you know, one time I got this big giant splitter in my thumb, you know, and I went, oh! <laughs> <laughs> okay you see why the comedy show does so well huh? <laughs> but, but i tell folks at the comedy show i said folks if you want to hear some funny knock knock jokes or jokes about your grandmother then go somewhere else <laughs> we're telling wrestling stories here yeah this ain't it but don't you think uh, jim that's you mentioned about how you can still go in the ring and you can still work an audience that that's why that learning that early on in your career, that's why you are still working? Uh, that and I still got a daughter in college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't, can't get yeah. to the beach yet. Yeah, right. You know no. what I'm saying about being able, but having that uh, ability, like you said, they've kind of, in some ways they've lost that today because I remember, you know, uh, the superstars that, that we worked with where you they just stepped into the ring. I mean, they didn't, you could, have an arm bar for a minute and a half, and they still had that crowd on the edge of their seats. Well, uh, don't you think that that's really what's carried you, the fact that you know how to work a crowd, too? I mean, besides what you did? Oh, yes. Yeah. A big part of my whole career, you know? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, in the early days, I chopped meat, you know, back in the day with Buzz Sawyer and One Man Gang down there in Mid-South with Dino and WWF, uh, Dino Bravo. But then I evolved. When I was the king of wrestling, I had the cape, the crown, the, the flag, the board, the thumb, <laughs> the tongue, the hole in the crossed eyes, you know? And I come back and Strongbow's like, Duggan, can you be a little more serious in the ring? <laughs> <laughs> and Bobby Heaton be like, you know, Vince, uh, Duggan, Duggan needs an eagle. You should get Duggan an eagle. I'm like, shut the hell up. He'll get me the eagle for just for a rib, right? You know? You ran out of arms. You wouldn't have been able to do it. Yeah, yeah. I tell you though, it, you know, when you, but when That's you think the, back that, to that, yeah, that definitely extended my career. I mean, you're not going to last 30 plus years out there taking bumps off the top. I like, you know, look at Mick, God bless him. He's all broke up, you know, uh, so it, it's different. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think, uh, as I said, in your case, you've been working. I mean, people, you, you've never stopped doing what you do. And, you know, I left the WWF at the time in 1993 and, and people just think I dropped off the face of the earth because, you know, they always went like, why did he leave? What, what happened? And it was, you know, and I, I really wanted to uh, get that out there because even people mentioned in a few books that I was this guy who 
uh, was, you know, didn't want people to know about my wrestling background. I think like, really, how in the world do you appear on, you know, five shows a week, uh, all around the world, uh, on Coliseum videos. And you're going to tell people, no, that wasn't me. I, I, you know, I never, ever was not proud of what I did at the WWF and, uh, and Vince McMahon gave me this tremendous opportunity. I would have never learned to perform in front of a camera like I did if it wasn't for him. And I went and, you know, I, uh, shortly after I left the WWF in 93, I went and worked at WWOR in New York and then I went to Boston and then I came home and, uh, now, you know, I'm a, I'm a news anchor here out in Arizona and I do a morning show, but you know, I've, it's, it's been awesome to still be connected to this. And I go back now and then and, and appear on a few uh, things for WWE. So uh, I think that both of us agree that this business has been tremendous to us. And, and this isn't a show where we're going to be here to, to, to knock that, you know? No, I think uh, there's life after wrestling. You know, like you say, so many people are on camera, you see them a lot and boom, you, you don't see them no more. And you're like, well, what happened to them? And a lot of them have, you know, successful lives outside of wrestling this the stories the the tragedies that you hear about you hear all about the stories about my good friend you know jake the snake you hear all the stories about scott hall and how ddp had to you know clean these guys out but nobody wants to talk about uh, tito santana and his two boys going through two ivy league schools and graduating with honors you know and been with his wife for years uh the guys that have successful lives out there you never hear about people like to train rexon that's just, you know, human nature. Yeah. Okay. So I want to take you back. Cause I think a lot of people want, want to, uh, uh, hear about, uh, the time that, you know, like we both kind of emerged at the same time we collided in, in, in all this craziness. You arrived in the WWF in 1987. I came the, the following year, but we came from really different worlds. Um, at the time, you know, uh, I think it was right after, was it, did you arrive before WrestleMania three or after? Uh, before WrestleMania three. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, but, uh, you know, if a lot of people, I don't know if they've done their history, they know that at WrestleMania one, Vince bet the house on that, on that event. If that wouldn't have succeeded, uh, we would have never gone to work for that company and there would not be this unbelievable, uh, company, uh, entertainment, uh, behemoth that is known as world wrestling entertainment. Uh, at that time when you were, when you were with mid South and all that, and you knew a lot of these guys that ended up going to work in the WWF, uh, what was, what was being said? Because we, it wasn't, we had, you wouldn't though you could text somebody or, or Twitter them, uh, what was being said about this, what was going on up in New York? Well, uh, like him or hate him, you got to respect Vince McMahon because, like you said, he went ahead, he gambled everything, he mortgaged his home, put everything on the line, and and worked hard. Have and to this day, he's one of the first guys at the building, one of the last guys to leave. Vince is a very hands-on guy, and of course, Linda is very prominent in the in the company also, and you can understand why she's uh, the, the head of the uh, Small Business Association there in in Washington. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he, he gambled everything, but on the indie show or on the territories, I was down in mid South, of course, when he started doing it in WrestleMania one came up and junkyard dog jumped ship from mid South and went up for number one, which worked out okay for me. Cause that bumped me up to the top baby face at number one. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, Bill Watts was like, well, you know, Vince will never be able to follow it. He popped his wad. There's only going to be one show. 
there'll never be another WrestleMania. Well, WrestleMania two came up, uh, Jake, the snake, he went up for WrestleMania two. You know, Jake and I are good, very good friends back then. And, you know, Jake calls me, he says, Hey, Duggan, this is the place to be. <laughs> Boom. I, I made the move, came up for WrestleMania three. And, and I joke, I said, you know, DiBiase's down there and he's like, you know, the junk, junkyard dog, Jake, the snake hacksaw Duggan. And he says, I can't come to WWF. I'm just Ted DiBiase. <laughs> of course, he ends up coming up, getting the million dollar man gimmick, having the best gimmick of anybody for, for WrestleMania four. So, uh, you know, uh, McMahon, uh, gambled everything, but the guys out there, I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's a tough competitive business. We all saw the way the, the uh, wrestling world was going and, uh, there most anybody that had any potential made the move up to WW right off the bat. Yeah. And, uh, all this was just, you know, basically boys, it, it seemed as though, uh, you know, I'm sure that they were able to get, you know, videotape of, of different guys performing and everything, but it, it seemed back at that time and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that, that, uh, a recruiting was basically done through the boys. Is that right? I mean, as far as, you know, like you said, Jay called you, everybody knew oh, yeah. it was good. Well, yeah, it was, well, actually I, yeah, Jake called me and he wasn't like, Hey, Vince wants you to come up here. He said, right. Hey, this is, the, this is the place to be. I called uh, Vince McMahon and I, uh, you know, made that point. Hey, said, Hey, and he said, yeah, we'd love to have you come up, give your notice down there, work your way out. Wait a minute though. Wait a minute here though. Let's back up a little, Jim. <laughs> you just picked up the phone and called Vince McMahon. Is that, is there like back channels you say, Hey, uh, Jake, can you get me a number? I mean, how, how did that work? Ah, uh, oh, yeah. Well, I just called the office, man. Boom. You know, so Jim Duggan for Vince McMahon and, and down the road, I got a call back. And he didn't put you right through. Oh, sure. The only time I got right through to Vince was when I was riding with a sheik. That's the exactly. only time I got, that's the only time I got straight through. And folks, that's another episode that that is coming. <laughs> Not today. We have way too much. <laughs> I promise. I promise that one is coming. So tell me about that first conversation. I mean, did it seem like you? Yeah, I know, you know, very aware of who you are. And uh, I very yeah, knew who I was, said they'd love to have me come up or, you know, knows about my work you know, and go ahead. Give your notice to Bill Watts work your way out, you know, and, and do your jobs on the way out, which I did, you know, back in the day, that was the deal. Guys would do you favors on the way in. You'd do favors for guys on the way out, you know, so everybody was beating me on the way out, but that's the way the business was back then. Now, what was, what was Watts attitude about that? that when he's, well, he wasn't real happy, of course. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I was pretty hot down there in Mid South, you know, probably not on the level JY was, you know, dogs, yeah. you know, he was really, really steaming down there. But I had good, good steam myself down there and I had a good run in Mid South and it was hard to leave. I mean, yeah, I had, yeah, I was going to say, was there loyal, any hesitation on your part? Was there any hesitation sure, on your part? I mean, you were, I've lived in, uh, yep, I'm living in Pineville, Louisiana. My first little two bedroom house I bought with Dr. Death Steve Williams, you know, and uh, I'm like going to New York, New York, man. Hey, if you make it there, you can make it anywhere. And it's a big time to go up there. And uh, sure, I was apprehensive. I was uh, go up to New York. Are you kidding? Yeah, was it was was it kind of one of those things, you know, where here you're the big dog and you're going to you're making good money. I know you, you mentioned that. 
and you know that uh, you know the WWF is big time, but then you're going to be competing against you know you've mentioned it before about just how many guys can fit in that roster. I think at the time uh, there was about I think 56 superstars. I think look, doing some research on it that I think that now you think about all of the wrestlers in the United States, uh, not you know even in the world, and being one of those 56. Uh, was that part of the hesitation to think that, you know, you get lost in this gigantic. Well, you also, you know, Hey, I was young. I had a lot of confidence too. You can't go up there with your hat in your hand, neither. Boom. I'm coming in. And right. you know, uh, that's the way I, that's the way I went in. And of course, as we're talking, you just say what 58 guys, that's yeah. one thing. So many folks have no up, you know, comp- uh, comprehension of wrestling and how competitive it is. You know, I tell them, hey, kids, there's, you know, it goes, I want to be a WWE wrestler. I said, chase your dreams, because who would have ever thought Daniel Bryant would made it? You know, you look at that kid, there's no way, but there's a guy that had the heart, the work ethic to make it. So I tell a young guy to chase your dreams, but also keep in perspective. You know, there's 1,500 NFL football players playing this year. There's 800 NBA basketball players. What is there? Let's just say 58, maybe 100 guys on contract with WW. It's television. It's more competitive than sports, and, and people don't see it that way. Yeah. And of course, it's, and it's just, just kids from America. you got guys from Australia, Japan, Europe, uh, Canada. I mean, everybody wants my job. <laughs> yeah, and, and, they, and I said, well, there's under 60. It's the best of the best of the world. I mean, they've got, they got the best guys, and then you know, you're all competing for that stage. But uh, as you mentioned, you know, you can't go up there with your uh, your hat in your hand either. You, you, you went up there pretty confident, huh? Well, you got to go. Yeah. If you don't believe in yourself, you don't belong up there, brother. I mean, it's it's the big leagues and caps and sleeves at that level, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I want and I want to talk about those uh, those early days, like when you first went up. I just want, I wanted to mention, like, you know, how I ended up getting there because I, I, if anybody <laughs> wants to know, but it's uh, it, it's an interesting path that that I traveled to get there in a sense that I really did not come from uh, that kind of wrestling background. I mean, I was a, a you know a casual fan. I growing up out in Tucson, Arizona, we didn't get a lot of shows, and TV wasn't really big either uh, out here as far as getting. Uh, material on TV. And I ended up, uh, when I graduated from the U of A, going back to New York and working for, I got working for major league baseball production. I'd majored in radio television and, uh, had worked on a show called light moments in sports with Joe Namath, who was the host of it. And I was the correspondent who went out and did crazy stunts, uh, features because Joe, you know, I didn't have the knees anymore. So it was a big opportunity for me. And I was also a producer on the show. And the only, the way that, that I uh, got my chance is that I did a story at Larry Sharp's monster factory in New Jersey. Uh, you remember that? Uh, sure. Uh, that, yeah. Well and, known. And, yeah. Yeah. And many, many, uh, wrestlers came out of that school and I went there and I did, you know, the, the idiot reporter gets this, the crap beat out of them. Um, but you know, it, it was, it was a fun story and I, but at the same time, I totally respected what I was doing. I wasn't looking at it from a different angle like that. And somebody with the WWF at the time saw it and showed it to Vince. And I got this phone call from a friend of mine who was working with the WWF up in Stanford. This was before the tower was built. And he said, Hey, you know, uh, Vince wants to have you come up and audition. And I'm like, what? I mean, I, I, you know, WrestleMania had really started to blow up. That whole thing was big. 
uh, Hulk had done his appearance in, you know, Rocky three and, uh, and, uh, people you know, going, yeah, going crazy for it. So I remember I took, I took the train. I studied every single superstar. There was, I had two weeks to get ready and, uh, you know, I had watched it, but I was, I became a serious student and went up there and did the audition. Now you've heard of it, how they do the, you know, here's a broom, sell it to me. And somehow I got a call two weeks later and was offered a job up there and, and uh, never looked back. And I, I think the one thing that kept me there was the event center because Gene Okerlund wanted nothing to do with the event center because what it consisted of was sitting uh, at a desk, uh, ad-libbing cards. And we would do, you know, you remember how many events they did back then, Jim, uh, we would, customize these markets. It was a brilliant idea because you would actually, you know, customize the market and say, Hey, you know, that Madison square garden this Friday night, Hacksaw, Jim Duggan, the man who lays down the lumber takes on the eighth wonder of the world. Andre, the giant don't miss it, you know, and you would sit there and do these cards, but you do the whole card. And, uh, Gene didn't want anything to do with that. And so he was, uh, the fact that he had other things going on was a great opportunity for me. And I just went from there, but, uh, I, I was, I, I'd love to know what your first impression of when you first met Vince, what you, what, what you remember. And then I'll tell you what I remember. Well, yeah, I actually met Vince back in the early, early days of the old WWWF days as, as big Jim Duggan, you know, I, uh, came up from Texas where I broke in with uh, Fritz von Erich. And so I had my, uh, red and black drunk, uh, trunks, uh, my uh, short hair, clean shaven, and I wore a long gold bathrobe to the ring. So I'm working up in the WWWF. And Vince back then was just the announcer. I mean, he was, uh, but, uh, you know, he was almost one of the boys. He'd hang around the guys a lot more and everything. And, uh, you know, that, that was my Pat first. And Patterson did play-by-play with him, right? Um, I think Jesse was there a lot, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think Jesse was in it a lot. And, uh, you know, we, uh, Gorilla and Bobby, of course, but, uh, uh, but yeah, Vince senior and Arnie school. And that's when that was my, my, my first meeting with Vince, but that was different. Of course, when I came back and, and met him to do the, uh, do the shows and, and actually work for the man. And, and that was all business. He's been always been business to me. You know, I just did a, a talk show recently with a, a young guy in Atlanta who got fired from WWF or WWE. And he's like, oh, well, that Vince McMahon, he treats us like pieces of meat. And I looked at the kid. I'm like, well, son, what the hell you think you are? You know, <laughs> if you, you want a friend, go buy a puppy. You know, Vince <laughs> is right. your boss. He's not your buddy. You know, if you want to make it in our business, you pretty much got to work for Vince McMahon and the WW. And you're going to have your run with him. And down the road is going to be a flushing sound. <laughs> Welcome to the big time, kid. Prepare. Yeah. Save your Save your money. Unless you're a guy like Undertaker or, or the guys on that level, but uh, you know, but it's it's been a good run. I I have uh, I, I didn't expect a whole lot of Vince from Vince McMahon other than being an employer, and that's pretty much what he was, and ma- made a good living for me and my family. Yeah, and uh, I remember the the first time because I used, I was still living in New York City. I used to take the train up there every day, and the TV facility is still the same. They they still have they still do a lot of the production. Uh, at the same place, but I, I always thought it was funny that we had, you know, they had edit one was where all the shows were done. Well, there really wasn't another edit room. It was just edit one. Uh, since then there's, there's several, but, uh, 
I, one of the first time uh, I was there, and they really didn't know what to do with me at first. They're going to have me do, you know, try out for the do the event center. And uh, uh, Craig DeGeorge was in the process of of, uh, of leaving, and so I, I remember, you know, I would sit and edit one because that's I, they didn't have anything else for me to do. And I remember Hulk came in, the first time I ever saw him, and uh, <clears throat> he came in and he sees me sitting over there and he goes, "Who are you?" I said, "I'm Sean Mooney. I'm one of the new announcers." And he says, uh, "Did you bring a bag?" And I said, uh, well, yeah. And he said, don't unpack. <laughs> that, was, that was my first introduction to Hulk. So, uh, good advice. Went, <laughs> but you, you beat the odds. Not too many people last. I mean, high turnover rate. Like I said, it's not only competitive on the wrestling level, but it's competitive on the announcer level. A lot of people want that spot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, at the time too, and I, I, I want to get into this, uh, conversation as well but before i do one thing you mentioned arnold scullin and and a lot of people i don't know uh, realize that a lot a lot of these giant names in wrestling uh were also were agents for for vince you know you mentioned you know arnold scullin and nick bockwinkle renee goulet uh the chief chief j strongbow pedro morales you know black jack lanza uh being around those guys how how did uh how did they help you guys? I mean, they were basically wrestlers who just had not, some of them hadn't stepped out of the ring for long. Right. Yeah. I think they pretty much stayed out of the way, you know, made sure everything ran smoothly, uh, operational wise, but ring wise, you know, it's, you know, Arnie would be sitting there with this big cigar playing cribbage with Andre, give you a thumbs up or thumbs down. That, that's your finish. <laughs> then you go over and work it out. You know, who's going over, boom, and let the boys work it out and put it together, you know. So at that level, everybody is pretty much very professional. So they would just tell you who's going over, you'd work it out. Nowadays, of course, everything, is, it's, it's a totally different product, you know. But uh, back then, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down, the boys would work it out. And you'd wrestle with the same guy often. You know, a lot of people say, well, that's your opponent. He says, that's not your opponent. That's your partner. You know, you're wrestling with your partner. If your partner gets hurt, boom, you're both out of work. If you guys are in an angle and your partner blows out a knee, then boom, you're out of the way too. I mean, it's, uh, uh, so you want to take care of your partner out there. Yeah. Do, do you remember any, any backstage stuff with these guys? I don't know, Arnold, I just always remember him having a poker game going with that cigar and I didn't. <laughs> I never had the uh, the chance to see him in the ring, but do you remember ever you remember any uh, these stories with these guys that? Uh, and I know it was different when it was not TV. Mm-hmm. What do you mean the back? I mean if backstage. You it back, yeah. Backstage, it was A to Z, brother. It was it's rock and roll. You know, like I said, people try to compare you to a sports team. You were more like a, a rock and roll band than you were a sports team. You were flying all around the world, Learjets, limousines. I mean, like Flair says, you know, you're in Paris, you're in London, you're in New York City. Uh, drugs, women, booze. It, it not only all went on at the hotel, it went on at the arenas too. I mean, it was a, a wild, wild lifestyle. Uh, and But you would respect the agents. You wouldn't do nothing, you know, in front of anybody. But uh, also the agents weren't really wide-eyed to see what was going on. You know, they, like I yeah. said, they were the boys too. They understood. Yeah, it, was a different, it was a different time back then. Well, but say before cell phones, gosh, I can't understand how the young guys can function now with everything you can possibly do being recorded. 
I mean, you know, I go out, you know, the little bit I do now and, and folks have a phone and record me. I can't imagine being one of the current guys and, you know, you go anywhere. Everything you do is recorded a uh, different time. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and back at that time, you know, we're talking mid 80s. Vince had realized early on, especially with these gigantic productions that he put on with WrestleMania and the other things that he had had, had planned for. But he, I think he realized that it was going to take uh, a lot more than the resources from the, the world of wrestling. And that, and that included people who did production because a lot of it was, you know, kind of studio wrestling and they'd set up the ring and chairs at a local station or something like that. And now this was big time. So he started bringing in all of this, uh, you know, television production people from the network and, and, and I kind of was caught up in that. That's when, so you had these two worlds colliding and, uh, I just remember, you know, walking into uh, a locker room and guys would be speaking Carney and suddenly the conversation would turn, you know, and you, you were definitely felt that you were an outsider. Uh, do you remember that collision uh, and what, where you saw these two worlds, you know, smashing into each other? Yeah, well, I actually lived it because, you know, the, uh, the, the WWWF was very closed. I mean, they walk in that dressing room. You couldn't have walked in the dressing room. I don't know if they, unless you were an announcer at the shows, I guess, probably. But that was extremely closed society. And as time went on, the doors opened more and more. WWF, you know, Mid-South was, you know, you can't, uh, heels and baby faces can't ride together. Still very closed society. WWF, and as time went on now, I mean, you know, the internet helped a lot of businesses. It really pulled the curtain back on pro wrestling. Everybody now is a wrestler. Everybody knows about wrestling. Everybody knows about the blade. You know, I mean, the, the, it's the business's uh, open book, but still it, it, you defines all thought, but it's still very, very popular. It's, it's a, it's a great show. I find folks that are critical of the product have never actually been. You know, I said, oh, that wrestling, I don't think I'd like it. I said, have you ever been? They're like, no. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, well, you know, go one night. It's a fun night out. You cheer the good guy. You boo the bad guy, you know, or you go sit in a movie for three hours. I mean, wrestling is great. And even at the independent circuit, I tell you, I do a lot. There's some great independent shows out there. Uh, and uh, I just was down in Texas. They had myself, MVP, Chavo Guerrero Jr., uh, Lisa Marie, the Von Erich boys, I mean, uh, they ran three shows down there in uh, Fort Worth, Dallas, and Arlington, Texas. Uh, there's there's a lot of good indie shows out there. I'd like I like to see somebody, you know, you're never going to compete with a WWF, but often alternative. For every Hertz, there's an Avis. And, you know, in TNA Impact, they're not carrying the load. I can see, I hope Tommy Dreamer's deal, House of Hardcore, I'd like to see that do well. A lot of folks like that Ring of Honor. I think if one of these uh, stage three companies get the financial backing, they can bump Impact Wrestling and, and often an alternative to WWE. Yeah. You, know, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, uh, how those back in, in the day when, when uh, you first uh, joined the WWF and you guys were doing, you know, some, day, some nights they had four shows going, you do two on a oh. weekend. Uh, and and you, you had that separation between baby faces and heels. What was it? What was the, the like traveling? Do you remember from the road of, of, you know, getting in between those cities? And, and I don't know who you who you hung out with or who you regularly traveled with. Yeah. But what was that? What was that Jake, experience? Like? Jake was my, my 
regular travel mate. I traveled with Jake an awful lot in the beginning, man. But, you know, funny, you see, yeah, so I was telling you earlier, I went ahead and dug up these old booking sheets. And this is a uh, 3-1. Um, so March 1st, they got a double shot. The, the first show is in Moline at 1.30. The next show at 8 o'clock that night is Des Moines. That's group one. Group two is in Bangor, Maine at 1.30 in Portland, Maine at 8 p.m. And just a couple of names off the card. Uh, Big Boss Man, Bulldog, DiBiase, Earthquake, Hulk, Cato, Matador, Repo Man, Sid Justice, Typhoon, Warlord, Sergeant Slaughter, Piper, wow. Betty, uh, Jimmy Hart, Flair. I mean, you know, that, that was kind of the generation. But there is two groups running, uh, you know, two shows a night. Uh, it's amazing how often you'd run back then, just one show after another. And, and uh, some days you do six shows in three days. Wow. Double and, shots. But, but back then, see, that was before contracts, Sean. So if you didn't work, you didn't get paid. Yeah, so yeah. You, you wanted to work as much as you can, you know. So my run, I had a 50 to four day long stretch without a day off. Wow. But I was wrestling Andre the Giant. So if Andre wanted to wrestle, I sure just darn wanted to wrestle him because that main, I was main event that night, and that's where the bread was. Yeah. But guys like uh, Jake and uh, uh, Piper, a lot of those guys were up over 100 days. So That's insane. A lot of, lot of work. What, and what were you just, you know, you do the show, you run out of the arena, throw your stuff in a, I mean, and, and hop in a car? I mean, how did that? Sure. Yeah, they even had... Back in the day, they used to have the King Airs. We used to joke it was the WWF Air Force. They have like six King Airs that hold about five, six guys each. They're double-engine uh, prop planes, and you'd run from one to the other and jump in the airplane. And the, as soon as the first match was over, you'd, you'd get dressed, you'd get in the car, and you'd head to the show. So sometimes, you know, depending on how far apart, the opening match at the last show, the last match may just finish at the first show and guys would jump in their car and, and race, you know? So that was the old joke. If you're going to be late, be late enough that they're happy to see you, you know, thank yeah, God you me. made it. Thank God you made it. Where the hell you been? Thank God you made it. Gee, you guys yeah. made it. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to be uh, late. You want to be just, just in time. Yeah. Uh, give me, give me a King Air story. There's got to be an unbelievable. Uh, I'm sure you've got a bunch, but but you you flew in these. They they, they were these little planes. It, it kind of had to be scary at times. Well, I tell you, the, the the scariest time though was even a smaller plane. Man, it was uh, Ronnie Garvin had his own plane. It was like a like a compact car. It fit four guys, and he's yeah. flying it. It was myself and uh, four wrestlers or normal people. <laughs> four normal we got four wrestlers it was me sean and marty yeah. you know, and uh ronnie garvin so we we went whatever town we were in we went out and partied all night you know and, and went to the room so ronnie gets up ron was a very business guy you know he went up went to sean and marty's room they're passed out you know still laying in bed we're supposed to lay where the hell i went down. he goes i'll get Doug and Doug and be up he'll go he opens my door i'm laid out all passed out he's like you son of a gun so he got us on the plane he punished us <laughs> <laughs> i'm like oh god it's like being on a big lawnmower being in that little tiny plane man but but uh yeah, that's one thing in uh traveling and wrestling you get 
I, I was up in uh, me and Brutus the Barber Beefcake were up in Inuvik, uh, Northwest Territories, up above the Arctic Circle, and uh, we did a show up there. And they said, uh, they said, you want to do a uh, autograph session at an Eskimo village? And we said, sure. <laughs> that so, just sounds funny. I'm sorry, but yeah. so me and Beefer. Me and Bruce the Barber Beefcake, we jump in this little tiny brush plane, take off, <laughs> go up to a town, Toyatuck, on the Arctic Ocean, way up above the, uh, and we land on this gravel airstrip, and, <laughs> and we go in this little community center, and it was built to hold 100 people. There's 150 people in there, man. It was jammed, you know, and everybody's very excited to get autographs. And they kept pushing the table and they were squeezing us into the back of the wall. Beefcake jumps up. He goes, yo, people are the rudest people in the world. <laughs> I good. That's a good thing to say in the mob. We could disappear up here awful darn quick. Jeez, we had beluga whale for lunch, you know. <laughs> people say, how did it taste? I said, it tastes like Tabasco. <laughs> and you got out of there. Yeah, we made it out of there, but, uh, what, you know, that's wrestling. What an experience, uh, that's been in my lifetime. You know, I've had the opportunity to wrestle in every state in the union, every province in Canada in 30 different countries. It's, uh, amazing. It's hard to think of 30 countries, but the amazing appeal of wrestling around the world. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, when the WWF really started to expand and I remember we started doing things, uh, with Sky Television over in uh, the UK. That was really our first real, uh, when we started doing tours over there. And uh, Lord Alfred Hayes, who uh, is uh, was a really a very close friend of mine, close personal friend, as uh, Gene would say, but, uh, uh, and I'd love to talk about him. I go on and on. We will eventually uh, get into how he really brought me into the business. And I don't know if it would have lasted a year if it wasn't for him. But I remember when that was all starting out and, uh, they had us in the event center, start doing event center stuff. And we made that first trip over there. And I, I don't know if you remember the first time you did that, that tour. And there was one thing, you know, we'd been to all over the United States and seen the reaction that we were getting from crowds in, in the United States. But I remember that first time we went over there and I, we, we did a show at Albert hall and I, I don't yeah, know how many well. people that place, I don't, yeah, I don't remember how many uh, the people that place held, but I did a bit with the bushwhackers out on one of the stages there and I, it, they blew our heads off. It was, it was unbelievable when we went out there and then, you know, at the hotels, the thousands of people out there and it's, it, it, I don't know what it is, but just being in another part of the world and then also the reaction, do you remember that one of the first tours you did over there and the reaction you got? Oh yeah. You said that there'd be uh, crowds at the airport. They were excited to see yeah. you at the airport. You have motorcycle escorts for the buses taking you to the hotel. They have, security at the hotel. It's like WrestleMania is now. I, you see the same deal at WrestleMania and some of the other pay-per-views where the fans stake out the airports and hotels. But uh, you know, like Royal Albert Hall, I said, yeah, I've wrestled Royal Albert Hall, Wembley yeah. Stadium. But I mean, yeah, what a thrill to go overseas. And I mean, to this day, I, I, go, I go to especially Scotland and England and uh, Ireland quite a bit uh, now. And uh, it's amazing. You'll be walking through... Uh, Aberdeen, Scotland, and the people go, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, nobody knows Peyton Manning over here, but they'll go, oh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it really is amazing. And I remember because I had one of the things that Gene had taught me early on 
when I was doing the events and he says, you know, uh, where, whenever we go to cities, you know, take a note of when there's a bar next door to the arena, you know, uh, get a name of some guy that was, uh, you know, behind the bar or whatever. And I used to take notes. I had a notebook that I would take with me and I would write down these little notes, you know, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the, lo- the lost lady bar next to the Boston garden or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, I got to go say hi to my friend, uh, Joe McKinnon and the, the rest of the gang. Wasn't that the and, lost lady at the garden bar in Boston? Yeah. <laughs> That's more like the book you're keeping Mooney. Come on. You're on the road too, brother. <laughs> Okay, what show is that? Yeah. Jim? I'm going to put that down as 138. Okay, <laughs> but uh, yeah. I, I went to England though, and I and I did what uh, I just got on uh, you know one of the maps because like, you couldn't find it on the internet, and I found places that were in around Albert Hall, and I would do the same thing. And when I went over there, I mean, I, you know, people recognize you here in the United States, but I remember we were in a lobby one time. I was with Bobby and uh, Gorilla was there, and and Alfred and you know a few of the boys. And I saw this huge crowd there. And I, of course, you see them going for everybody. And I figured, oh, yeah, they're going to go after the guys. They, like, I was, like, mobbed. And I couldn't figure, like, what the hell? And it was, uh, they called me the lad. And I figured, well, because I localized it. You know, I was, like, one of the first people from the WWF who actually recognized things from their home, I guess. But it was, it was crazy. And it, it, uh, it's just gotten bigger and bigger since. Do you think that's yeah. one of the best venues ever? What, what as far as the world goes? What what are some of what, one of your favorite places to always go for those shows? Yeah, in the world, uh, the Tokyo Dome's pretty good, man. Uh, that that's when that's hopping, that's pretty good because that was a problem in Europe for a while. They didn't have no large dome stadiums. That was a big gamble when they had WrestleMania at Wembley Stadium. They were sweating the weather if the weather was bad. So there was no real large dome stadiums like the Tokyo Dome or the Super Dome or Silver Dome or stuff like that. But, yeah, I, I like, you know, probably my favorite arena is the one where I developed Hacksaw. was the old Sam Houston Coliseum in, in Houston, Texas. You know, that building, that however many people they had that were supposed to be in there, they'd have 500 more than were supposed to be in there. It was jam-packed, you know, the cigarette smoke, the lights in the deal. Everything was black. I mean, it was uh, huh. just old-school, hardcore wrestling. Uh, you know, the fans would be up in the ring with you sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it was, a, yeah, uh, of course, just one of the many arenas they've uh, torn down that I've wrestled in. Yeah. And uh, one of the reasons you uh, started carrying a two-by-four, I imagine. Two-by-four, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Back in the day, it was a, yeah, it was, it was a rough business, you know. Uh, you know, Bill Watts is well-known. They had the waiver. If you wanted to try one of the wrestlers, boom, you sign the waiver, you come up in the ring with us. And of course, we had Dr. Death Steve Williams, an NCAA champion. <laughs> He'd go out there, roll around with a guy for five, ten minutes, blow him up, and then Bill get in there and really stretch him. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, so we're getting really close here on, uh, you know, we, uh, the time we have, but, um, and, and I believe this podcast is going to kind of come together as, as we go and, and different parts of it. But I, there are some things that I want to try and include every week. And, and one of them is, you know, kind of playing off the old shows, but, uh, to call it our spotlight and, uh, where we talk about, you know, a superstar that, uh, you or I, or both of us worked with, uh, you know, back in the day. And, and I, I, I thought a great way to start, and I'm hoping that, you know, our listeners will let us know who they want to hear about. 
And folks, you can do that uh, by you know contacting either uh, Jim or I uh, through our Twitters. Jim's is at official hacksaw, and mine is at Sean Mooney Who. Uh, thanks to Bobby Heenan. If people know what exactly that means, we'll. <laughs> Remember, you used to say, oh, OK, uh, but uh, let us know what you want to hear about. And uh, one of them, uh, as far as some of these superstars, we're going to call this a spotlight. I thought it'd be great to start with uh, somebody that you knew very well, started early on in your career with you, is uh, Tonga Fafita or Meng, as uh, you knew him. And um, I knew him better as Haku, but uh, a, a fascinating guy uh, that um, was from the island of Tonga um, and uh, was sent to Japan, as the legend goes, by the king of Tonga to become a sumo wrestler. And uh, apparently things didn't go very well uh, as far as, uh, I, I guess, management there and, and whatever. They had a, a falling out of some kind. And he ended up going to uh, all Japan pro wrestling. Um, also, uh, you know, Sion Valahi, I guess that's it was his better i knew him as the barbarian he was also one of these guys who came from the island and went at the same time with him but i don't know if anybody knows him better than you do jim tell us about uh hank Haku. yeah yeah uh, tama tonga when i knew him i think uh, in uh hawaii back in 19 maybe 80 we were both working that was in for hawaii right when you first met him when you went over there or you were uh, sent over yeah I broke in in Dallas. I went up to WWWF as uh, Big Jim, and uh, Arnie and Vince Sr. called me in the office, gotcha. and they said, Ted, you, you might have a future, but come up with something better than Big Jim. <laughs> we all know you're big. Bathrobe. Get rid of that gold bathrobe. I still wear so they sent me to Hawaii, and I went over there, and one of the first guys I met, uh, the only guy that met, I had met and lasted through the years in the business was Haku. And... Uh, we all lived in a motel called the Chateau Blue. It was right down in downtown Fancy. Honolulu. Oh, it was in downtown Honolulu. It was a rough part of town. I mean, there was <laughs> the Chateau didn't help it any, huh? Oh, it was rough. And uh, we had, you know, three guys living in a one-bedroom uh, gimmick, and we had a, a piece of su uh, hard suitcase was our table. But we're all a bunch of young guys. We we loved it, you know. We we were running every day back then, and we all would run down to uh, Waikiki and, you know, meet the young girls coming from Iowa or wherever, you know, scare them off. <laughs> Hello. But, uh, yeah, it was a, a great little wrestling territory. We worked the islands, and, of course, you're only making maybe 30, 40 bucks a week, you know. And my, my mom, God bless her, wow. she'd send us care packages of peanut butter and crackers, you know, me and Haku, and we'd by we need a lot of pineapple you could get a lot of free pineapple over there so much pineapple you the, the sides of your mouth would be burning from the acid <laughs> but it was a, a good time for a bunch of young guys and every once in a while the wild samoans would come back from japan they'd stop in hawaii and do a big show for my via high chief peter my and they'd take us out and buy us a steak so to this day, I always remember Alpha and Sika, you know, we're, we're starving, eating nothing but Chinese uh, the, uh, buffet and have them to come take us out and buy us a steak every once in a while. I always remember that. Wow. And, but, and, oh, go ahead. Excuse me. No, I was going to say that. Uh, did you realize just how tough uh, Haku was then? I mean, he, it's, they, they say he's one of the toughest ever, but, but he was also a very, you know, I was going to say from my perspective, 
you know, he was always uh, a great guy. I mean, you know, I would see him at TVs, but then again, I always knew he was a human being. I never, never wanted to cross. Yeah, uh, I think uh, a Polynesian race of folks are probably the toughest race of people in the world. Yeah. I mean, they're, you know, uh, let's look at, like you say, Barbarian. I mean, uh, Jimmy Snuka, uh, great athletes. Uh, Yokozuna, I mean, just big, strong, powerful, powerful men. And Haku is noticed as one of the toughest ones. But, as you say, one of the nicest guys, and that's the way you usually see it. The, the nice, nice guy is usually, it's the guy with the big mouth, ain't the tough guy. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the guy that's quiet. But also, back in that dressing room, there wasn't a whole lot of walks in the park in that dressing room. Everybody could pretty much take care of themselves. So that's why there was so little fights going on backstage because you know you're not going to win a fight and walk away you know the other guy's going to get his in too you know it's not going to be uh just a, a beat somebody up deal it's going to if you fight a man that knows how to fight nobody walks away clean yeah and, and uh there was a uh i guess a a respect in the locker room but there were dust-ups Oh yeah, sure. yeah, and, and Haku was known for one of them. But surprisingly, there wasn't more dust-ups because you take these group of guys, you got them on the road away from their families, flying every day, eating horrible food, trying to get a workout, and worried about their job, worried about their payoff. And then they got twenty guys in a room, aimed for ten for dressing, get dressed. You know, everybody's jammed in one dressing room. Surprisingly, there's not more flare-ups than there was. Yeah. And that really was the, the Wild West, because even when, um, like I mentioned, this collision uh, that was happening with the WWF at the time, back in the mid-80s, uh, it was pretty much justice was handed out by the boys. There was not, uh, management really didn't have a whole lot to do with it, when you say, because uh, I remember, you know, a few incidents that happened even at TV, but... Uh, you know, well, they had no no human ro- uh, resources department. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. If you got a complaint, there's only one place to take it. And that's in the shower. I mean, you know, and that's where a lot of stuff got straightened out. And a lot of times it didn't come to blows. I mean, but uh, yeah, it was a different time, not just in our business and any business. I mean, uh, it, but uh, it's much more simpler back then. If you had a, 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 gripe, a gripe with somebody, you'd handle it personally. Yeah. And and uh, I imagine uh, Haku probably didn't have to. Uh, no, no, he didn't have make any. Great, I mean, if you think about it, though, I mean, I can only think of a handful of dust-ups. I mean, uh, uh, um, Berserka and Butch Reed had one in Mid South. I mean, an actual big fight. Uh, me and Matt Bourne had one, but relatively not not too many. I think uh, Kurt and uh, Von Eric had a little dust-up in the dressing room. But no big eye gouging, you know, throat gashing fights like you'd think. Well, and in some ways, you know, you had to keep working too. I mean, even if uh, if you had this knockdown drag out, you could be hurt, even if you won. Well, yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, you, if, if you're going to fight somebody in that dress, you're going to get hurt. <laughs> you're not going to beat somebody up and walk away eh? unless you pull a Rougeau deal, but that's something else. <laughs> Yeah, and, that, and I think that that's uh, that's another show down the road too, because I, I was at that TV, and I uh, you were too. So uh, uh, that story too, like I said, that's another show. There's two sides to that story, also. Yeah, yeah, because uh, you know I worked with the, the the Bulldogs quite a bit, and uh, you know there was a real dark side to that that tag team. Um, but 
there was also, you know, it was survival in that business, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, if you can't take them straight up, you got to do something else, you know, at least yeah. you didn't run them over with a car. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Jim, uh, you know, we've got, we've got, uh, Lots of stuff to cover down the road here. Uh, I'd love to uh, be telling, I'm going to tell my uh, encounters with uh, Vince McMahon. I, I think that uh, one episode that would be great would cover the WBF, if you remember that. Uh, I've got some Twitters from people asking about, about Sensational fish. Sherry, uh, who uh, you worked with, I know, a few times. I, I worked with her. I hosted uh, a couple of shows with her. I think I still have the scars. But... Uh, you know, I, 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 I just hope that people, if you, if you love that time, uh, you're going to tune in because, uh, as we get going here, we're going to, we're going to, uh, turn back the curtain, pull back the curtain a little more and more every time. And with that in mind, folks, I hope that you will, uh, you know, contact us through Twitter. I guess that's the best way. Jim, you're all over Twitter, right? I mean, I, you're what do you mean by that, Moody? <laughs> Very popular. <laughs> no, well, that's a joke. When I first got a hundred thousand, I called Piper. I'm like, Pipe, Pipe. I said, I got a hundred thousand followers on Twitter. He goes, Doug, and I got half a million. Yeah, like, yeah. I'll talk to you tomorrow, Pipe. Uh, yeah, call me when you get. Uh, when you get yeah, love. right. Yeah, so, but so it's all relative. But it's nice to have that opportunity to share stuff with fans and get stuff get stuff out there. Which uh, let me go ahead and plug some shows I got coming up real quick. Yeah, if, please. Yep, I, I'm going to, uh, the 23rd, uh, 24th of June, I'm going to be at the Knoxville, Tennessee Comic Con. Uh, July 1st, I'll be in Rutland, Vermont, wrestling. Uh, July 28th, Poughkeepsie, New York, and 29th, Green Bay. So stay tuned. Old Hacksaw's in the ring doing what I do best. Beat people up, tough guy. Oh, where's my two-by-four? <laughs> You sound just as good as you did when you first came into the WWF, Jim. Uh, people say, well, what do you do, Axel? I said, well, I can still yell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sean, good talking to you, my friend. I'm sure we'll be doing more and more of this if Brian likes it. He gives us me the evil eyeball there. Yeah, that's our producer he's talking about, folks. Hey, uh, folks, also, uh, you can email us at primetime at mlw.com. Uh, again, Hacksaw's Twitter at official Hacksaw and at Sean Mooney who hey you know Hacksaw I've got uh, like I'm approaching 3,000 right now so I, uh, I, I I guess I won't be contacting you about it for a while but well, I, I haven't had well, this one very he's got like 200,000 I'm like come on Slippery how'd that happen <laughs> I think he's got his daughter working on it those are bots right <laughs> bots alright thanks for tuning in folks uh, we'll see you right, again you. next week right here on primetime with Hacksaw Jim Duggan and me, Sean Mooney. Give me a hole on the way out. Oh! Right, shot. Oh! She's a good girl. <laughs>